HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. You're here today with your host, Heather Hyman. We want to thank um, our sponsor of today's show, Hearst Ranch, where the Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast since 1865. And uh, we'd like to introduce our guest today, Charlie Nardozzi. Hi, Charlie. How are you? I'm fine, Heather. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'd like Good. to encourage um, all of our listeners to call in today if you have any questions for Charlie at 718-497-2128. Charlie is not a stranger to the Heritage Radio Network. He's actually a returning guest. Um, you will maybe have heard his voice on the Monday Edible Communities program with Deborah Shapiro, where he um, gives gardening tips. Um, we're thrilled to have you on today, Charlie. Well, it's good to be here. Um, I understand that you've spent more than 20 years bringing expert gardening tips to home gardeners through radio, television, and the printed page. Um, Charlie is a senior horticulturist, and he's the spokesperson currently for the National Gardening Association. And in 2005, he hosted PBS's Grand Garden Smart. Um, Charlie, you grew up around your grandmother's farm in Connecticut, and this planted the seeds for your lifelong farming passion. What kind of life lessons do you think farming can afford someone? Well, just remembering back to my grandmother and grandfather, they're Italian immigrants, and they pretty much just um, came from Italy with no money at all, um, came through New York and went up to Connecticut and started farming, just uh, started scratching a living out of the land. And I think what happens a lot of times when you're doing something like that, it takes a lot of courage. I mean, you're really just kind of putting your faith in nature and the weather and your ability and your strength to go out there and actually start growing crops and making a living and supporting your family. So growing up in that environment, I really got a sense of the independence and the tenacity of being a farmer and just watching them day to day going out there every day working long hours and, and really working hard. But also, uh, what was part of it, part of his course being an Italian-American, mm-hmm. <laughs> they got those big Italian families, there was always a sense of family and community and a sense of helping each other out and a sense of being there for each other uh, no matter what was going on and lots of big gatherings, relatives would come over, friends, neighbors. So the farm really became a central hub, a, a meeting place for a lot of people in the community. And I think that's really uh, true today, even uh, with farms uh, 
being very dramatically different across the country, some of them being huge corporate farms. Uh, there's a lot of smaller uh, small farms and kind of almost like neighborhood farms that are out there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's still a meeting place. It's still a gathering place. And I, I really reflect on that and really see that when I go to CSAs, Community Supported Agricultural, I'll pick up locations or to a farmer's market. And you see people just gathering. There's kind of a, a certain kind of joy and just a liveliness of being around the people that are growing your food. Most certainly. I would agree with that, too. I I tend to see that here in the farmer's markets in New York. And we're actually sitting in um, a shipping container under a rooftop garden where we've actually had many um, volunteers come through just because they wanted to get involved and learn a little bit about planting their own food. So I would say that that's definitely um, something that comes with uh, farming. Yeah. Um, What lessons has has it instilled in you that you can apply to your life outside of farming, just being on the farm and growing up on a farm? Well, I think the the whole idea of really working hard. Mm -hmm. And um, I hate to get into the old kids these days. (laughs) (laughs) I vowed never to do that when I was younger, and now here I Uh am older. (laughs) No, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, It certainly instills a sense of working hard and working with the land and staying with things and being diligent and uh, really being responsible for things, whether it be animals. My grandfather had a diversified farm. I guess he would call it today. He just called it a farm Mm -hmm. uh, where he had chickens and cows and some goats and lots of vegetables and uh, pigs in an orchard with apples. So he had a lot of different things he was growing. So just the ability to juggle lots of responsibilities, to be organized enough to know what you have to do when to make sure everything is taken care of, and to be just staying on top of things, working hard, sticking with it, uh, going through adversity. You know, bad weather happens, you lose a crop of something, an animal gets sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just kind of have to be able to roll with it. And a lot of those are great life lessons so that you can apply them to any profession that you're doing. You know, sticking with things, rolling with the punches as they come, being able to multitask is what we call it now. I guess we call it <laughs> a lot of different things back then. But be able to juggle a lot of things all at once and staying organized around it all. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely, and you have a passion now instilled in you forever to kind of complete your projects. Yes, exactly. Uh, was there something you wanted to say? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, because of that, that passion, too, you really have a drive, and it doesn't, it doesn't become so much of a, a chore to do it. It's mm-hmm. really because you love to do it. And I remember that about my grandfather, is that he just loved being out there. I, he, didn't, he couldn't envision himself doing something else. Hmm. So when you're doing that in your life, no matter what it is, whether it be practicing law or working on a farm or uh, working in a hospital or whatever it is, uh, it doesn't really matter so much to the hours and the time spent it's because it is such a passion you just love to do it and uh, was the farm that your you that your grandfather had was that his only source of income yes it was wonderful so he yeah. was able to raise his family just off the farm and you said that you were able to you know um, get volunteers or at least have more family members come around um, was that because you know you knew it was like time to harvest a crop and you would need extra hands how did you figure out like when you needed to call people in well it- he would say that they showed up when things were ready to be eaten, not so much harvested. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> but, yes, you would kind of know, uh, especially in the summer and fall, of course, are the busiest times with the gardening, kind of the plant ends of things, that that's when relatives would show up. Um, he did a lot of haying, so um, even as a young boy, I remember helping him with 
stacking bales of hay onto the truck and bringing it into the barn for the animals for the winter. So a lot of the things would happen in the summer and fall, and it became a cycle. It became, uh, you really got more in tune with nature's cycles and nature's seasons so that people would kind of know, oh, it's July, they're doing some haying now, or, oh, it's September, we're picking apples. So that's kind of a time you need to check in and see uh, if some help is needed. Definitely. And then they would get their apples in return. And get a few apples in return. And a good spaghetti supper. It is apple season now, isn't it? It is apple season, yes. My wife just went picking apples today. Did she? In your own garden? Uh, No, we don't have apple trees here, but there's a local orchard right down the road that we can go to. Wonderful. What's the name of the orchard? It's Shelburne Orchards. Oh, is there Shelburne, Shelburne? They, They must be coming down to the New York markets, I believe. That name's very familiar. Well, there's a Shelburne Farms uh, who ship out cheese. They're pretty famous with their cheese. Oh, that's why I know them. And Shelburne Orchards, I'm not sure if they ship their apples very far, but they make cider. They make a, a great cider called Ginger Jack, hmm. which is an apple cider with ginger in it. And I don't know if you like apple cider, Heather. I love but... apple cider, but ginger is a little much for me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's an interesting combination. It gives the cider a little more of a bite. So if you like something with a strong flavor, that's a nice thing to try. Wonderful. Yeah. And I was just going to say, they do a lot of great fun things. They just had a pie uh, contest there this past weekend. And they have um, all kind. They have a Japanese festival, actually a Japanese harvest festival that they do in September, where they have taiko drummers coming through the orchards huh. and they lead a parade through the orchard. So and a lot of fun are, things you can do. These are visitors from Japan that come to the orchard. Well, there's a local taiko group okay. that's been playing here, and they play at festivals and, and do performances, and they come in and do the the whole fall festival. That's more than just like the regular hayride you would get going apple picking. <laughs> exactly, it's a little more international that way. Most certainly. So why do you think it is so vital to instill an awareness of and passion for farming in inhabitants of rural and urban environments alike? Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it to install that passion? Well, like, why do you think it's so vital to make oh, sure that like, people like me in Brooklyn here you know, instill this passion for farming? Well, even if you're excuse me, in the city and you're not able to be partaking in a big farming operation, you certainly can grow your own food in smaller places on a rooftop, like you're saying, in a community garden, even mm-hmm. on your back deck and, and balcony. Fire escape. <laughs> Fire escape, yep, yeah, that's a good place to grow it. So you can grow some of your own food there, too. But it's also good to have an appreciation for what it's, farming is all about. I like to tell people that this generation that's growing up now in their, their teens and early 20s may be the first generation in the history of our country that doesn't have a direct connection to the farm, mm-hmm. doesn't have a direct connection to our rural roots. Unless their parents or grandparents have been farmers. Yeah, and, and there's fewer and fewer of those out there. You know, my generation and, and older generations, we had uncles or fa- parents or grandparents or someone where you'd have a, a knowledge of we went to the farm in the summer or we would talk to them, and you had a, kind of a sense of where the food came from. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of young people these days, kids in school, uh, just don't have that sense. They they really don't. Even in a place like Vermont, where I am, mm-hmm. when you think of it as a rural state and lots of farms, there are kids here that don't know where potatoes grow or don't know where their food comes from. So it's a constant battle to kind of uh, get kids more connected to the land, more connected to where the food comes from. Because once they understand where it comes from and what it takes to grow it, there's a more appreciation for what it, the price they're paying for it, and there's more support for it, especially as they get older, uh, when there's laws and rules being passed about protecting farmland, 
that they're going to have to vote on. <laughs> right, that they're going to be voting on, creating incentives to help farmers. Uh, there's a more of an appreciation for the role that farming plays in their community and a sense that their food just doesn't come from a grocery store. It comes from a farm. It comes from a place. Good answer. Well, for someone totally new to growing their own food, what are the very basics they need and what should they know? Um, and in addition to that, um, I have a question from um, a nice woman here named Gwen Chance, and she wants to know, what is your Bible that you would recommend for a new farmer who's planting crops um, in a very small space to maximize the yield, kind of like in an urban setting like here yeah. in Brooklyn? Sure. Uh, well, Gwen, uh, I hate to blow my own horn a little bit here, but I will. <laughs> I just completed the the latest version of the Vegetable Gardening for Dummies book, hmm. which is one I wrote about 10 years ago, and I just updated it. Uh, it's a general gardening book for sure, and it's, it's really not just adapted to small space gardening. But if you're looking for a general guide to vegetable gardening, it might be one you want to check out and just see if it has the information you need. There is a gentleman up in Maine named Elliot Coleman, Ah, yes. And you've, you've heard of him then, uh -huh. Heather. Yeah, and he's written some great books. Uh, one called The Four Season Harvest would probably be a really nice one for her to get. Uh, this book is, even though it's written, he's up in rural Maine, he has a, a small garden. He has a small little market garden, and he really maximizes production by doing succession crops and growing lots of things in raised beds in tight quarters so he can get a lot of production out of a small space. Yep. And that's really what she's probably looking for. So I would suggest checking out those books on um, either in a bookstore or online. Definitely. And Elliot Coleman's actually been on our network. So Gwen, oh, um, go ahead and search for Elliot Coleman's name in our archives. And uh, you can listen to some of his uh, tips and learn a little bit about the books that he's written. But that's awesome, Charlie, that you uh, look up to him as well. Yes, I do. Um, now... Let's walk people through starting something like a backyard garden, from supplies to obtaining soil to growing techniques. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I've created what I call the five S's of a vegetable garden for someone who's totally a novice, totally a beginner. The first thing you want to consider is the sun. You want to make sure you have at least six hours of sun a day on your area where you're going to be vegetable gardening. That will allow you to grow all the fruiting crops, the tomatoes, the peppers, the eggplants, the squash, the cucumbers, things like that without any kind of concern about having enough sun for them to mature. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a location, especially if you're in an urban area, you might have a lot of shading from buildings or big trees, you may only get three or four hours of sun. And that's fine because you can still grow leafy green crops like spinach and lettuce and kale and Swiss chard or some of the root crops like carrots and beets and radishes. They'll do okay in that shorter sun areas of three to four hours. And another thing you need to keep in mind with the sun is that watch where the sun is in the sky at different seasons. Mm -hmm. So where it is in May, for example, is going to be a different place in the sky than where it will be in July. It will mm -hmm. be different than where it is in August and September. Right. Because a lot of times if you check, like in June when we're at the, the solstice, the summer solstice, the, sky, the sun is the highest in the sky, and so you might have full sun in most areas. Okay. But if you wait till July or August, the sun is lower in the sky, and it might be uh, behind a building or you might be behind a, a tree, and you might be getting shade where you thought you had full sun. Hmm. So it's always good to kind of scope that out before you go laying out the garden and realizing where you have full sun for the most time during the summer and into the fall. All right, and that's just the first S in the five S's. That's the first <laughs> S. Are you ready for more? I'm ready. Let's go. Number two. 
Number two is the soil. You have to have really healthy soil. If you're going to do anything, you want to feed the soil. The healthier the soil, the more uh, nutrient-rich, the more fertile the soil, the better your plants will grow and the less problems you're going to have with insects, diseases, and any kinds of problems. So before you do anything, build up the soil. Bring in compost. Uh, if you want to grow a cover crop, this time of year is a great time to actually grow a cover crop. Putting down some winter rye, winter wheat, uh, some annual ryegrass. Just put it in your bed that you might have and just let it grow up. It'll grow and germinate in these cooler temperatures. In the spring, just turn it under, and you're adding organic matter to the soil. Mm -hmm. The more organic matter you can add, the more fertile the soil will be. Now, we'll get to the third S in a second, but um, what about, like, one or water that runs off of, like, roofs, roofs and, like, has pollution in it? Like, maybe, I don't even know if that's, like, the same as acid rain. Does that really affect the soil, like the rainwater? Well, it could, you know, depending upon how much, what it's running off on. Now, mm -hmm. if it's just running off over asphalt shingles, say, on a housetop or a rooftop into a gutter and then into a rain barrel, it's really not too much of a concern that you're getting contamination. Mm -hmm. But if it's running off other areas and it's, it's, there's like, um, you can see there's kind of oil in there, you'll notice that it doesn't, of course, mix in with the water mm -hmm. or things like that, then you might want to avoid trying to use that water in your garden. Yeah. And you might want to try to divert it away from your garden so that you don't get those kind of things contaminated. That's the other thing with the soil, especially in urban areas. You want to do a soil test to make sure you don't have heavy metals, lead, mm -hmm. and any kind of contaminants in that soil. Uh, what does that you, do? If, well, if you have those in there, there's a chance that the plant will be, able, will be taking that up and then you'll be consuming it. Right. Or it might harm the actual growth of the plant, too. So you, you really need to check the soil, uh, do a test, make sure it's, it's good to use, and then build a raised bed. I always recommend people building raised beds so that they can elevate this, the garden a little bit, maybe 8 or 10 inches high, fill it up with some compost and topsoil, mm -hmm. and then you can just garden away. And that way we're able to control the soil. There's no variables because that water won't be running off into it. Right, exactly. All right, so on to S number three. S number three, where were we? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I got into it a little bit with the uh, raised beds. It's okay. the, it's the, um, the site where you're going to be situating the garden. You want to situate it so you can build a little raised bed there because the raised beds will warm up faster, dry out sooner in the spring, and allow you to garden and not have to step on the soil, not have to compact the soil. So you can make it as long as you want, but no wider than about three or four feet. That way you can reach the center from any angle or from any side of it. Mm -hmm. And also you want to locate it close to where you're going to be walking by. So don't put it, I mean, in a city it's probably not going to be too much of a concern, but if you're more in a suburban area or a rural area, you don't stick it out back somewhere mm -hmm. where you're going to forget about it. Hmm. You know, put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day. And if you see it every day, it's more likely you're going to go in there and pull a few weeds, pick a few cherry tomatoes, water a plant that needs it, and generally take care of it better. Right. You see, you talk about, uh, I guess, spacing there, but we also have to worry about where our sun's going to be. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's why in an urban area, you kind of have to have some trade-offs, I think. Okay, so on to S number four. S number four is the size. So I talked about keeping it small. That's a good uh -huh. thing to do. You also might want to go vertical with some things. Yes. Uh, think of some plants that will climb. Uh, the peas and beans are obvious ones, but even things like zucchinis and some of the crookneck squashes can actually be trellised up. A melon can be trellised up. So you can maximize the size of your garden by using things that create ver verticality, I might call it. Right. So you can go up a little bit higher. And you can also create containers all around the garden, too. So you can have your main garden area, and then you can have some containers where you can be growing herbs or beans or lettuces or a number of, or even some of the smaller shrubs, uh, berry bushes, like blueberries, for example, or uh, some of the uh, strawberries. 
So there's a lot of ways to maximize the size of your garden just by using verticality and using the containers. And with verticality, like talking about melons and zucchini, do they grow from like the bottom up? Like what happens? How does that happen? Because wouldn't a plant become very top heavy or you just have to make sure that you're picking the zucchinis or the melons as they become um, ready to be picked so that the plant wouldn't fall over? Well, with the zucchinis and the summer squashes, you want to pick them on the small side anyway. Okay. They're going to taste better and they're going to produce more if you can pick them when they're six, eight inches long and not wait till they turn into those big clubs. So uh, you'll be able to trellis them up. Those are different than, say, a, a bean or a pea because they're not going to necessarily grab hold of a trellis. So you're going to have to tie them onto a wire fence or a mm-hmm. stake. Uh, with the melons, they will grab hold, but, of course, the melons are going to be much heavier because they're on the vine. So you might want to create a little sling for some of the melons. Mm-hmm. So you can have uh, some people use, like, a piece of cloth or a piece of nylon and attach it to two sides of the fence and just have the melon sitting there. And that will support it and keep it on the vine until it's ready to ripen. So if you've got um, any experience in nursing, you could uh, make sure to, like, you know, get that melon a nice little sling there. There you go. If you have an old sling from a broken arm or something, use that one. (laughs) Wonderful. All right. So I guess we're on to S number five now, huh? S number five, selection. Okay. This is the final one for a beginning gardener. And this might sound kind of silly, but I, I always run into gardeners who do the opposite. You know, grow what you like to eat. I've run into many beginning gardeners who read books about it and get suggestions like, well, bush beans are really easy to grow. You should grow bush beans. So they grow bush beans, and then they admit at the end, well, you know, I don't really like bush beans very much. So grow the things you really like to eat. You know, grow things that you're really going to enjoy having out there. And then try a lot of variety. Try a lot of diversity in the garden. Uh, try a couple different types of tomato plants. Try some peppers and eggplants. Try some different kinds of lettuces. Mm-hmm. Create a nice selection of things in the garden that are going to be able to be enjoyed not only in the spring and summer, but into the fall, too. Uh, one of the things you can do with a small garden is to do succession planting that I alluded to with Elliot Coleman's book. Mm-hmm. And that means you're planting a crop in there, and when it's done or primarily done, you pull it out and you plant another crop. And, and in a lot of places, you can get three or four crops out of one little area just by doing succession planting. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, that actually leads me to my next question. I was going to ask if you could recommend some hardy fall vegetables to be planted right now. Well, it depends on where you are. If you're up in Vermont, we're kind of at the end of the planting season in most cases. You might be able to get away with a mescaline mix or mustard or kale or something like that. That'll be maturing really quickly. If you're further south, like in Texas, for example, or Southern Mm -hmm. California or Florida, this is just the beginning. You guys are just starting to garden, and you're putting lots of cool season crops in. Anything, The cool season crops tend to be the, the greens, broccoli family crops like cabbages, cauliflower, uh, broccoli, any of the root crops, uh, plants like that, peas, they tend to do really well in the cool season. So all of those types of plants are being planted now in places like Houston or Fort Lauderdale or down in Arizona. So different you, from here in New York, the, 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 the peas are things we usually plant first. Yes, exactly. And everywhere in between, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. still have time to plant. Uh, And I would suggest in October that people be planting greens. Mm -hmm. I mentioned mescaline mixes. You see these in grocery stores all the time. They're a mix of these baby greens of lettuces and um, beet greens, Swiss chard, kale, some of the Asian greens. Uh, Those are really nice, really easy to grow. Any of the lettuces would be good. Spinach would be nice. Swiss chard, kale. Any of those kind of leafy greens are good because all you need them to do is really germinate and get to a true leaf stage. So the first two leaves that come up are what we call the cotyledon leaves, the seedling leaves. The next two would be the true leaves. And once they start 
for uh, creating their true leaves, you can start harvesting them. All and you right. can be creating, in like 20, 30 days from seeding, you can be creating little salads based on your garden. Gotcha. So those would work. Uh, radishes are another really quick crop that you could probably put in right now. Uh, that would work. Some of the, even the little baby beets, if you're a little further south, mm-hmm. you have a little longer growing season, it'll, you won't get a frost till maybe November or so, uh, you can put some baby beets in. Those would be really nice. What about in California? Would all that apply, like the Texas to California? Yeah, in Southern California. If you're along the coast or in Northern California, it's going to be more, um, the, the kind of plantings will be more the greens and some of the root crops I was just mentioning. Wonderful. Just making sure we got all our listeners covered. Absolutely. Um, now, you are, you know, you have over 40 years of experience farming. Um, what is like one of your most valued tricks of the trade? Are you able to share that? Oh, yes, I think I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the, the things that I try to emphasize and have people do a lot of is to do mulching. And mulching is just basically putting down some kind of organic matter or some kind of covering over the soil. And it, it, it performs a lot of different tasks for you. What it'll do is it'll conserve the soil moisture. So if you get a dry summer, you won't have to water as much. It keeps weeds away. So once you get the garden weeded in the spring, you put the mulch down, you won't have to weed as much later on in the season. And it, it makes it look good. It makes it easier to walk through there. And if you're using an organic mulch like mm-hmm. hay or bark mulch, or chopped leaves or grass clippings from a lawn that's not been treated with chemicals, uh, you'll, you can turn that stuff over and turn it into the soil in the fall, and that's going to actually build up the soil and build up the organic matter. Right. So, so I, try, mm-hmm. I, excuse me, I just try to tell people to you know, go through, plant your garden, do a really good weeding of it, and then mulch it all. And then once it's all mulched, literally in July and August, all you're doing is going in, maybe doing a little watering, pulling a weed here and there, but mostly you're just harvesting and enjoying it. So mulching is a good trick to know for sure. That'll save you lots of time and labor. Yes, it will. Um, What would you say is your biggest gardening secret? My biggest gardening secret? Wow. Well, Mm -hmm. I got the mulching thing done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think this is the... uh, what I call, uh, it's not really companion planting, it's intercropping, that's the word for it. Uh, it's something that I do a lot of. Like the so, three sisters. Well, like the three sisters is a good example of it. Or with pole beans, planting like lettuces underneath it. Or even with plants like broccoli or squash, you put them in in the spring, and they're pretty small plants, and you've got all this space around them, because you have to space them properly, to put in a quick crop of radishes or a quick crop of greens in there, and then harvest those before the other plant gets big. And that performs a lot of things for you, and mostly it just maximizes the planting space. So you get more things out of that small square foot that you're planting. That's something that Gwen would be interested to know, too. So I hope she's still listening. Um, And then, um, what kind of garden are you working with currently? What do you have going on, like, in your own backyard? Well, we're still harvesting melons from our garden, from our vegetable garden, uh, Crenshaw's, uh, honeydews, and uh, some of the cantaloupes. Uh, we're still harvesting them. Even though we're up in Vermont, we still haven't gotten a killing frost, so mm-hmm. uh, we're able to enjoy those. I'm still harvesting one of the, I, I like to grow a lot of unusual things. You know, over the years, you try different things. And there's one um, pole bean. It's actually a yard-long bean. I don't know if you're familiar with yard-long beans. I was going to say, is it three feet? It is. is it? <laughs> it can grow three feet long. Wow. You see them a lot in Asian markets and Asian restaurants. Okay. Uh, and they grow like regular pole beans, and then they have these long beans that go down, and you, you chop them up and use them as, hmm. like a regular bush bean. There's one variety called red noodle that I grow that's a deep burgundy color. Hmm. And you harvest it this time of year, and you stir-fry it, and it stays that deep burgundy color. So it's a really beautiful-looking vegetable once, even after you cook it. Wow. 
What happens uh, to your garden once it reaches winter in Vermont? I mean, the winters in Vermont can be harsh. Is there no more garden at that point? Uh, yes. Well, for the most part. <laughs> I sometimes will, will mulch over the root crops, like the carrots and beets and parsnips, and go out there in the winter and then kind of dig in the mulch. And if it, the ground hasn't frozen solid, I can pull up some of those roots. It's kind of a way of storing the roots in the winter, just outdoors. Right. Uh, but for the most part, the, the garden is done. You know, by, I'd say, November or so, November, December, I'm harvesting the last leeks, the last peas. I plant a fall crop of peas, by the way. Mm. Uh, the last kales, the last Brussels sprouts, all those things are kind of wrapping up in November. Um, and so then the garden kind of goes to sleep for the winter until probably April next year. Um, what are the crops that you've had the most success with this season, and why do you think you've had that? Well, this season's been really good uh, for cool season crops. Up in Vermont, we've had kind of a cool, rainy, early summer, and it got sunny later. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had a good crop of peas early, and actually have a nice crop of fall peas now. Uh, the broccolis did really well. Uh, I'm trying to think here. Well, actually, some of the beans did well, too. Some of the filet beans, the French filet beans. And I had a nice crop of the edamames this year, too. Mm -hmm. uh, they did really well. Unfortunately, tomatoes got hit by the late blight, which right. hit a lot of different tomatoes all through the Northeast. I heard. Yes, yeah, so that has been really sad. I did get some out there before I had to pull out the whole plants. You, uh, but the, yeah, continue. I was going to say the warm season things like tomatoes, eggplants, and peppers, they did okay. I mean, tomatoes didn't, but the peppers and eggplant did okay, but not as good as past years. Do you, have, do you, rate, um, do you plant lots of heirloom varietals of, of tomatoes? I plant a, a, a variety of varieties. <laughs> I usually try to put some of the hybrids in there. Big Beef, for example, is one right. of my favorites. Uh -huh. There's a variety at Johnny's Selected Seeds in Maine. It's, a, it's early blight resistant, which is another problem I have in my garden. A lot of people have that problem in their garden. Uh, right. And it's a hybrid tomato, a red tomato, and I plant that a couple of those just because I'll know that I'll have some good tomatoes in there regardless of the diseases. Uh, but then I try some heirlooms every year. I've grown things like Cherokee Purple or Prudence Purple. Yeah, I was going to say, varieties. the thing I love most about all these heirloom tomatoes is the funny names that are attributed to some of them. I don't know where they came from. Were they festival winners or what? Yeah, some of them have a really interesting history. There's one called Radiator Charlie's Mortgage huh. Lifter. Huh. And uh, if we have some time, I don't know how much time we have left, I can tell you the story, Heather. Yeah, tell me the story. Okay, I'll tell you the story. So back in, uh, I think it was Wheeling, West Virginia, back in the 1920s, there was this radiator repair shop owned by this guy named Charlie, and he located it at the bottom of this big hill because he's a smart businessman, and the trucks would come through town, they'd go up the hill, their radiators would boil over, and they'd have to come back down, and he'd fix their trucks. <laughs> So Radiator Charlie uh, also was a great amateur gardener, and he loved tomatoes. So he would do his own breeding of tomatoes. He would cross different varieties and grow them up, and he'd have a big vegetable garden right up front of the Radiator Repair Shop, so all the drivers would see it and everything. And he came up with, after a number of different crosses, this one tomato variety that he really loved. And he grew it out there, and he would give some of the, the drivers some varieties, some of these tomatoes to eat, and they'd love them, and they'd buy them, and he started selling them. This was back in the Depression for a dollar a plant, a dollar a transplant. That's a lot. That, that was a lot back in the 1930s. And so he kept selling them, and he sold so many of them that he was able to pay off the mortgage on his radiator repair shop just oh. by selling tomatoes. And so that variety became known as Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter. Huh. That's really, that's a good story. I like that one. Yeah, it's good. Um, well, we, we have to wrap it up here, but I just want to see if there's a website or somewhere people can go to email you questions or anything that they might have for their gardening. 
Sure. You can go to the National Gardening Association website, mm-hmm. which is at www.garden.org, and uh, you can look through libraries, lots of different articles in there. There's a how-to and a Q&A library. And you can email me at charlien at garden.org, and I'll try to answer you. Charlien at garden.org. Well, I'd love to bring you back on again. I understand that you've helped salvage a community garden in Burlington, Vermont, which I hope to learn more about at another time. But sure. thank you again for your time. Enjoy the weekend. And um, we look forward to having you on again, The Farm Report. And we will hear you on our next Edible Communities show with Deborah Shapiro. Sounds great. All Take right. Care, well, Heather. thank you. Take care. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn. Now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Nero. But I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra. And since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Yeah, they love me everywhere. I used to cop in Harlem. All of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway. Pull me back to that McDonald's. Took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street. Catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons whipping pastry. Cruising down A Street.